0: Well, Christ City, it's my joy this morning to uh, introduce um, to you a a new preacher here at Christ City Church, Matt Crocker. He's not actually new to Christ City Church, so many of you guys already know him. Um, Matt, I'll invite you to come up with me. Um, Matt is, uh, he's been at Christ City Church for about three and a half years now. He's a director of, um, what is the actual title, Matt? I'm realizing... I'm youth ministry, director of youth ministry. I'm drawing a blank. Uh, director of youth ministry at Christ City Church. So he is in this network that we are part of. We have three individual churches that are uh, governed by their own elders and, and in their own neighborhoods. Um, but we have some network resources that serve all three churches. And Matt's function really as a director of youth ministry is to serve all three churches in that capacity for all of the youth. So the youth here know Matt well, and the parents of the youth know Matt well, but it's it's been my joy to work with Matt now for the last three and a half years. And I'm excited uh, that all of us together can hear what the Lord has put on his heart to share with us this morning. So Matt, can I pray for you? Yeah, Let's do that. Heavenly Father, Lord, I ask that you would bless Matt, that you would use him. Lord, to communicate your word, to, to teach us, to help us to grow up in understanding um, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ as Paul proclaims it in 1 Corinthians. Uh, would you challenge us? Would you convict us? Would you cause us to grow in sanctification, grow in joy, and to see Jesus Christ lifted high? It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Today's scripture portion is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 1 to 5.
1: Well, one of the more um, difficult things I've had to uh, deal with in my life has been the faith of uh, my older brother. Uh, When my older brother was around 18 years old, uh, he began to get uh, really into reading uh, these non-Christian books, and and he would read stuff uh, like The God Delusion by uh, Richard Dawkins or or God is Not Great by Christopher Hitchens and, and things like these, these types of books uh, and these were books that they really challenged uh, the traditional beliefs of the Christian church. In fact, they were kind of militantly against religion in, in all of its different forms. And this this is what my brother was reading in his spare time. And I remember uh, my mom... Uh, would give him Christian books to kind of try to counter some of this stuff, right? He was, uh, she would give him these, these books thinking that maybe they would counter the, the points of these new atheists as they were called. So she'd give him things like uh, the reason for God by, by Tim Keller or mere Christianity by CS Lewis. And maybe some of you have even heard of those books or read them. And my brother, he would, he would read them, but he would never um, really be compelled by them. well, He graduated from high school, uh, went off to university. He uh, started studying philosophy there. And it wasn't long before he sort of fully admitted to us as a family that he was now an atheist, that he no longer uh, believed in the faith that he'd grown up with. Uh, He had walked away from from the Lord. He'd walked away and rejected his Christian faith. And, And to be honest, this has been really hard for me. You know, this has been hard for my family. It's difficult. It's difficult to see someone you love go down a path that you know is so bad and so destructive. But the most difficult part, by far the most difficult part, has been the simple truth that me and my brother have lived very, very similar lives. You see, we both grew up in, in Christian homes with Christian parents, and we both went to the same church with the same pastor. We both went to the same schools growing up. We both read the same books, you know, both non Christian books and Christian books. We both took the exact same degrees in history. We both did the same things, and yet we came to these radically different conclusions about our faith. How can this be? You know, how is it that that two people who are exposed to the same experiences, you know, they read the same things, they they share the same sort of intellectual history, you might say, asking the same questions and then not believe the same things. I'm sure some of you here uh, can relate to this. Uh, Most of us in this room probably have relatives or, or friends who don't believe or who have rejected Christianity and they have very similar experiences to ours in life. And yet we believe. And it's hard. It hurts. And all we can do really to try to figure out what happened there is ask the question, why? Why do I believe, but they don't? I mean, we're basically the same. We've done the same things. What happened? Why? Well, I think our text today, uh, even if it's just in a small way, I think it helps. I think it helps to to answer some of these questions. And one of the ways it helps us is through our big idea of the text, which is this. Our faith rests in the power of God. Our faith rests in the power of God. If there's anything you should remember from this morning, it's that simple phrase. Our faith rests in the power of God. And we actually see this to be one of Paul's uh, major points throughout the last few sermons that we've been in. Uh, So for instance, all the way back in chapter one, uh, verse 18, Paul says, for the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God the cross, right? It's his power to save, to, to transform hearts, lives, to, to shift minds. And then later on, uh, Paul, he applies this reality to the Corinthian church in the sermon that we heard last week uh, by basically saying, look, you were not wise people. You were not impressive people. You were not intellectually superior to the rest of the Corinthians or something like that, but it was the power of God to choose you out of the world to make you his own so that, verse 29, no human being might boast in the presence of God. And then finally, in our passage today, Paul applies the idea that our faith rests in the power of God to his own preaching. To show that even in his own conduct, he embodied the biblical truth that faith rests in the power of God. So what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at what Paul says about his own preaching ministry. And we're going to see how all of it, everything he does, points us to this idea. This idea that faith in Jesus, faith rests in the power of God. So I've got three points for us. We're going to look at the content of Paul's preaching, the form of Paul's preaching, and the purpose of Paul's preaching. The content, the form, the purpose. First, the content of Paul's preaching. If you have your Bibles with you, flip them open to 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 2, and let's just read verse 1 together. And I, when I came to you brothers did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. When I was growing up and going to a church, my pastor, he had this really deep, deep passion for the people in our church to learn how to read the Bible as well. And so one of the things he would constantly say in his sermons over and over again, like every single week was context, 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 because he knew that knowing the context behind a passage could make all the difference in how we actually understand that passage. And I think that that concept actually applies here as well. You see, when we read this passage without kind of digging a little bit deeper, we actually may be tempted to think that what Paul is saying is literally that he was intentionally avoiding trying to be this intelligent and this persuasive guy in how he preached the gospel. But that's not at all what Paul is saying here. You see, in Corinth at this time, public speaking, it was this very lucrative and and elite business. There were lots of of public speakers who were professionally trained in what's called the art of, of rhetoric. And they knew, they knew how to speak persuasively. You know, they knew when to pause. They knew when to to yell and raise their voices. They knew when to be really, really quiet, how to draw on the people's emotions. These were professional rhetoricians, professional public speakers. It's even said that these sophists, that's what they were called at the time, uh, could argue so persuasively that they could make something that was obviously wrong seem right and something that was obviously right seem wrong. And because these people were so good at making these like impassioned speeches, what would happen is they would gain a following, right? They'd get this sort of like celebrity status in society and they would gain respect and admiration from the people at that time. They'd even have people who would pay them just to hear them teach and speak because they were so good at it and so compelling, You know, literally, this was the first century version of Patreon or YouTube subscribers. And because of this, because this was the cultural climate at Corinth during this time, it seems like some people in the church thought that this was a good way for them to preach the message of Jesus Christ. These Christians thought that if they could just use the the right rhetoric, the right sort of oratory, the the right sophistication in how they preached the gospel, then they would be well-received in Corinthian society. And who knows? Maybe they even had like good intentions, right? Maybe if they thought thought that if they could just make the gospel message a, a, a little bit more Corinthian you know, a little bit more palatable to that society, then maybe more people would come to believe in Christ. But as Paul is going to show us uh, when status or respect or, or admiration become the motivation for what you preach, even if you have the best intentions in the world, often what happens is that the sharp edges of the message get cut off. And this is exactly what we see in our text this morning. Look with me at verse two. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, to us, this is the message of the gospel. You know, we hear this and we go, yeah, right? The gospel, the person of Jesus Christ and him coming to earth and dying for my sins. And we hear that and that's what we think. But for the Corinthians, this would have been the sharp edge that they would have needed to cut off in order to make the gospel more palatable to their society. You see, for the Corinthians, the idea of a crucified Savior, this was completely ludicrous. Paul even says this earlier in Corinthians, for Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. See, the idea of Jesus Christ, a criminal condemned to die in the most shameful way possible, being the one in whom our salvation rests was complete folly to the Corinthian church. It was sheer insanity you know, think of the most um, unpalatable person you can think of in our society today. and Just picture them in your minds. Don't, uh, don't out names or anything like that. That could be bad and, and divisive. But just think of the most unpalatable person, okay, in your mind. Just think of them. Now, for the Corinthians, to say to the people around them in society, we worship Jesus, would be like you saying to the people around you in your life, that you worship that person in your mind. That's how unpalatable this message would have been to these people. The Corinthian church, they wanted to be well-received by their society. They wanted the status and they wanted the respect, but it was literally impossible to get that with the message they were preaching. As Brandt says, they wanted to live maximally Corinthian lives and minimally Christian lives. So they were tempted, right? They're tempted to cut off the the sharp edges of the gospel to make it more respectable. And this would have meant changing the whole message. And this is precisely why Paul reminds them of what he came to preach to them, Jesus Christ and him crucified. Now, to us, you know, this seems like, I think, a fairly obvious uh, failure on the part of the Corinthians. We're so used to hearing about Jesus and hearing about him crucified that to even suggest, like, cutting this thing off, it seems kind of crazy to us. But before we get too, you know, comfortable condemning the Corinthian church, let me just ask you a question. What sharp edges are we tempted to cut off? You see, here in Vancouver, we are just like the Corinthians. We want to be liked. We want to have status and respect among our colleagues and our peers. You know, we don't want our our running group on the weekend or, or the people in our yoga class or the barista to think that we're those type of people, right? No one wants that. We don't want that. And so we're tempted We're tempted to cut off the sharp edges of what we believe in order to be more liked, in order to be more respected. And to be honest, I struggle with this. When someone asks me, you know, what I do for work and I say, oh, you know, I'm a a pastor. The first thing I'm thinking every single time in my mind is, please please do not ask me about my church's position on homosexuality or the exclusivity of Christ or hell or whatever it is, right? Because I desperately want to be liked. I want the status that comes with being a Christian, but not the crucifixion that comes with following Christ. And we all do this. We are all tempted to cut off the sharp edges, to be liked, to have status, to to have clout in our society. Do you know why coins have a a little lip around the edge of them? Because back when coins uh, were made of precious metals, when someone got them, what they would do is they'd clip off of the edge just a tiny little bit. And they would do this over and over and over again until eventually no vendor anymore would take the coin because it was completely worthless now. The edges had been so clipped that it was a worthless coin. Christ City. When we clip off the sharp edges of our message to make it more palatable, and when we do that, over and over and over again it becomes worthless the value of the coin is dependent upon its edge and it's the same with the gospel in the corinthian church the message of the gospel it was folly it was a stumbling block but paul he he didn't clip off the sharp edges The content of Paul's preaching, it was the sharp edge. It was Jesus Christ and him crucified. And just like Paul preached that sharp edge, we need to preach that sharp edge today too. Our second point today uh, is the form of Paul's preaching. Read with me 1 Corinthians 2, uh, 3 through 4. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. So in Corinth, uh, because, you know, public speaking was such a lucrative business, uh, what would happen is that when a new speaker came into town, they would put on quite a big show right? They'd put on this massive thing. They would act almost like larger than life and they would appear extra flamboyant. And they would come across as these really, really impressive figures because they were trying to gain a following. See, it wasn't just that they were good at making great speeches, but their whole persona, everything about them gave off this, this air of being somebody who is worth listening to and someone worth following. They acted impressive to get people to subscribe to them, to follow them, to pay them money, to hear them teach what they had to teach. And it seems like Paul here has to remind this church of how he came to them. Because just like they were tempted to change the content, they, they were also tempted to change the form. Look what it says. Paul came to them, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. Paul does not show up as this impressive figure. He's weak, not figuratively weak, literally weak. You see, by the time Paul had come to the Corinthians, he had experienced some really harsh treatment at the hands of a bunch of different people. So for instance, in in Acts 14, we read uh, that Paul was stoned. Listen to this, but Jews came from Antioch and Iconium and having persuaded the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. Now you don't get heavy rocks thrown at your head until people think you're dead and then dragged out of the city without having some scars afterwards, you know, without having marks to show that this happened to you. And then later in Acts 16, we read of a time when Paul was beaten with rods. Listen to this. The crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison. This kind of punishment, it was so brutal, so intense. It would have left a man physically broken and weak. And that, that is how Paul comes to them. He doesn't come with, with the pomp and the impressive sort of stature of these great public speakers, but he comes to them battered and bruised and scarred and in weakness. Not only that, but it says that Paul came to them with fear and trembling. Now, this is actually a really interesting uh, phrase. Often these two words, uh, fear and trembling, they're used together in the Greek translation of the Old Testament to denote um, reverence and awe before God. And that's the sense that they're being used here. It's not saying that, that Paul was somehow afraid of the, the Corinthians, but it's saying that he had a deep, deep sense of reverence the task of proclaiming the gospel, which is the exact opposite of how these flamboyant preachers and teachers would have felt. There's a, uh, a commentator on Corinthians. His name's uh, W. Harold Mayer. And I think that he paraphrases this verse really well. Uh, this is how he put it. I came preaching simply as a frail, insufficient human being. I came with fear and a great deal of trembling as I realized the importance of preaching the eternal Gospel. Paul comes to this city in weakness, proclaiming the gospel, and this this is something I think that we really, really need to hear this morning. Paul comes in weakness. One of the things I've noticed as I've been around the church is that often uh, we think we're weak. And because we're weak, uh, we think that we're somehow unable to share the gospel. You know, we're so used to uh, these impressive public speakers, uh, the inspirational, those, like YouTube types, the really educated sort of apologetics guru who can uh, argue his way out of anything, that we don't think we have the, the resources to adequately share the gospel with the people around us. But that is not true. Paul comes into Corinth, a broken man, weak, unimpressive, uninteresting to their cultural standards, and he proclaims Jesus Christ to them. And this church that Paul is writing to was formed on the preaching of this weak man. Listen to me, whoever you are, Whatever your situation in life is, whatever disability you have, whatever your handicap is, whatever it is, whatever it is, you are not too weak to share the gospel. You are not an inadequate instrument in bringing the gospel to your workplace. You're not. You are not an inferior tool in the hands of God when it comes to preaching Christ at UBC. You are not an incapable stooge as God uses you to lead your family to Christ. You are not an insufficient means to God's ends. No matter who you are, God, he can use you to preach the gospel. And I know that it doesn't feel that way. I know that you feel like you don't always have the right answers to the questions people ask or the right gospel pitch when you're presented with that situation or the wise words to say to really convince someone or even the education for it. But hear me on this. If God can use Paul in Corinth, he can use you in Vancouver. Paul was the antithesis of everything Corinth expected from a teacher they wanted flair, they wanted pomp, they wanted impressive stature, but Paul was weak, he was frail, he was feeble, and God used him to start the first church in history in that city. In Vancouver, people, they expect us to be put together, you know, to be successful, well-spoken, articulate, engaging, and impressive, but God Even when we lack these things, God uses us when we proclaim the gospel in this city. So the content of Paul's preaching was Jesus Christ and him crucified. The form of Paul's preaching was in weakness. Let's look now and consider our our last uh, point today, the purpose of Paul's preaching. Given the Corinthian context, uh, given the fact that we know that that Corinth was enamored with these, you know, great speakers, these great rhetoricians and these persuasive arguments and public uh, figures, then why? Why would Paul preach the way he did? I mean, if I said to you, hey, I have figured out the secret to winning over the hearts of the Vancouverites, I figured it out. Wouldn't you want to use that information to win them over to the church? Like, of course you would. If Paul knew how to win over the Corinthians, if he knew that if he just went in there with with great rhetorical skill, went in there with the, you know, impressive charisma that people would be won over to the church, why didn't he do it? Why? What possible motive could Paul have for not doing this? Well, he actually tells us, um, verse five of our text this morning, read it with me. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Paul preached what he did and he preached the way he did so that the faith of this church would rest completely in the power of God. You see, if Paul had just won over the Corinthians using all the tools and all the tactics of the day, he would have won them over to what he calls here, the wisdom of men. And we get no indication, not one little bit, anywhere in Scripture, that the wisdom of men can save us. Not one Paul knows that what you convert them with is what you convert them to. And if you convert them with the wisdom of men, then guess what? They are converted to the wisdom of men and they're dead. They're dead in their sins. They're lost because the wisdom of men does not save. But when he comes and he preaches the radically countercultural, simple gospel message that Jesus Christ, that the son of God come in the flesh, died on the cross to redeem us, to save us from our sins. And when Paul does this in a radically countercultural way in weakness and in frailty, then he knows He knows that their faith, it doesn't rest on the wisdom of men because no one looking for the wisdom of men would have ever believed this message. Paul knows that when he preaches this message in this way, their faith must rest in the power of God. It's the power of God that saves. It's not the wisdom of men that saves. It's not the wisdom of of Matt, you know, winning you over with his amazing sermon that's going to save. It's not the wisdom of Brant and I'm not going to get invited back for saying this or Jonathan or Doug that saves. It's not even the wisdom of the new guy, Alvin, that saves. It is the power of God that saves. Romans 1:16 says this for I'm not ashamed of the gospel it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The gospel, the, the maligned, hated, spurned message of the gospel is the power of God for salvation. It is the only thing that will transform hearts. It's the only thing that will put people into a right relationship with God. And it is only by the power of God that people will believe it. Why? So that no one can boast in their wisdom. As Paul says in Ephesians 2: for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul argues that salvation is completely the work of God. And he demonstrates this through the message that he preached and the way that he preached it, so that no one could boast as if they somehow, you know, figured this out on their own, but so that people might see that their salvation rests in God. In other words, faith rests in the power of God. My brother um, still isn't a Christian. He stopped believing when he was about 18. Uh, he's now 30 and he's still not a Christian. It was 12 years and that's a long time. It's a long time. And I'm gonna be honest with you, you know, I don't get it. I don't understand. I don't understand why he doesn't believe. I don't get how me and him can be so similar and yet end up on these opposite paths when it comes to faith. I wrestle with this reality. But what I know is that it's not up to me. It's not up to my persuasion or my you know, rhetorical skill, whatever that means. But it's up to the power of God working in my brother's life. And that is a freeing reality because the burden of my brother's salvation, it's not upon my shoulders. It's not my bad gospel presentation. It's not my bad prayer life forum. It's not my forgetting to text him happy birthday that forget that, that prevents him from believing in the gospel. It's that the spirit of God has yet to do a work in his heart so that he too might have a faith that rests completely in the power of, Of God. Now, none of this is to say that I shouldn't preach the gospel to him. You know, none of that is to say that I shouldn't reason with him and and discuss the things of faith with him. Of course I should. Of course I should, because God has commanded me to, and he commands me to faithfully preach the gospel in every situation I'm in. But what it does mean is that I can trust God to work in his life as I proclaim You see, I can have hope that one day he may be saved by the power of God. I can have hope because I know that God is a God who transforms people's hearts and that he is good because I know that God is a just God and a fair God because I know that that God loves so much that he died on the cross to save his people. And I know that God is a God that seeks out the lost and works to transform them by his power alone. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, Does he not leave the 99 in the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Thank you, Lord, for the Apostle Paul, who wasn't willing to switch up the content of his message, wasn't willing to change the form of his message, but preached faithfully the gospel of your Son Jesus. And Father, it's upon his shoulders that we now stand. Father, I pray that for all of us here, we might be encouraged to know that as we preach Jesus Christ crucified in our homes, in our workplaces, at school, wherever it is we are going, you do a work by the power of your Spirit. Father, faith rests in you. I pray we might be encouraged by that this morning, knowing, Lord, that you are the good God that draws people to yourself. Fill us with your Holy Spirit, I pray. Amen.